Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast, we're going to introduce a new book entitled These Brothers of Mine, A Biblical Theology of Land and Family and a Response to Christian Zionism by Rob Dalrymple. And we're very pleased to have with us online Dr. Rob Dalrymple. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. We were very excited when we saw this title and when we read the book, The Godsend, really, for our mission as people that have followed us, we have been challenging Christian Zionist churches for over 12 years now, and through the writings of Chuck Carlson and our actual vigils at probably well over 100 different churches around the country. So this is kind of like ammunition for our quiver, if you will, to have a theological response, a very well-thought-out theological response. And What's amazing to me, when I started reading this, I recalled, and Chuck had brought this up not too long ago, the Scottish poet, journalist, and author, Charles McKay of the 19th century, who wrote the book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. This was in 1841, and his famous quote is, Quote, men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly one by one. And when I started into Rob's book, I sort of was struck by this thought because Rob actually was a Christian Zionist in his upbringing. We'll We'll discuss that in other aspects of his book as we start out. But I wanted to start with a short quote here from his conclusion in chapter 17. Here he says, quote, In many ways I wish that this book were just another theological treatise that debated the finer points of Christian theology. And he mentioned infant baptism. Should it be done at infancy or should it be done at a later date when decisions can be made by that person. And he goes on here, that I was just another contributor to a theological issue. Unfortunately, the theological positions relating to the temple, the people of God, and the land have had far-ranging effects. What does it matter what we believe about the temple, the people, and the land? It matters for a number of reasons. One of these is that evangelical Christianity has allowed the popular convictions of Christian Zionism to dramatically affect our view of what is happening in the Holy Land. Unfortunately, life in the Holy Land is difficult for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. The present conflict has unfortunately been fostered in large part because of evangelical Christians and their theological convictions of Christian Zionism. This book is intended to bring awareness that our theological convictions on such matters are not a set of isolated ramblings with little to no effect on the world. Quite the contrary, the effects are significant. And that was so well said. And we'd like to start our conversation, Pastor Rob, with a little bit of your background. Again, what was interesting to me was how you... What was the aha moment you had uh, about Christian Zionism, the whole subject? So if, if you just give us a little background on you have a Ph.D. and you are the uh, pastor at the Northminster Presbyterian Church in Bakersfield, California. You're the co-chairman of the Book of Revelation study group for the Evangelical Theological Society. You also were a New Testament professor at the Koinia Graduate School of Theology and the Biblical Seminary in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Pastor well, thank Rob. you very much, and thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I kind of tell the story um, in the opening chapters of the book of my own journey. Um, I think it's important sometimes for people to understand, you know, where we've come from and, and, and how we've arrived with where we're at. And 
for me, I grew up very much of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church, and I don't mean to disparage that at all. Wonderful things happened for me in those early years, but certainly uh, Christian Zionism was part of the fabric of our culture and dispensational, pre-tribulational, you know, rapture theology and all that comes with that. I gravitated away from that just through my own studies, getting some teaching posts, and, you know, you begin studying, uh, you know, even an, an average set of evangelical commentaries, and it's going to lead you away in, from some of those directions. And so I gravitated away from some of that theologically, but I never really had any thought in terms of the political implications of it. I was still probably a Zionist because I didn't even think twice about it overall. And then I began realizing, no, the New Testament was pretty clear that Jesus and the church are the fulfillment of God's promises, that every title applied to Israel in the Old Testament is applied to Jesus and applied to the church in the New Testament. That, that was pretty easy to see. But the political implications of it, I, I just never thought about it. And I really didn't know a whole lot about the politics of what was happening in the West Bank and Israel or Gaza. I didn't, probably couldn't even tell you where Gaza was on the map. And then uh, I had an opportunity to go to Israel, Jerusalem, and take a course as part of my Ph.D. program. It's a great course. It's a great study for me. But a couple things happened while I was there in the land, and it was surprising to me. And I, thought, I narrate the story in the book, so I'll just get the skinny part of it now. But um, first off, I, I just saw some injustice. I saw some people being treated unfairly, women and children. I just thought, you know, that ain't, that's not right. And uh, as it turns out, there are Palestinian families. And I was over at one of the checkpoints, or one of the border crossings, actually, from Jordan into the West Bank. Didn't make too big a difference for me, and I, I moved on and, and uh, experienced that for about an hour or so. But then uh, later on in that same trip, I was walking around Bethany and just kind of, you know, figuring out what things were. And uh, I saw a church, and I was I was amazed. I didn't know that there were any Christians here, and there was a Christian church there. And I'm sorry, but I was very ignorant. But I have a feeling that most Americans are, are as ignorant as I was. There were Christians there, and I'm like, wow, that was surprising. Fast forward five years later, I'm back taking a group over. I'm leading a group this time. I finished my Ph.D. now. And, and this time, the bus stops, and the professor of the, of the school that we were taking the class with just stops it in front of Bethlehem Bible College. And uh, he just goes on. This is Bethlehem Bible College, an evangelical Bible college, in the heart of Bethlehem, in the heart of Bethlehem, doing wonderful things for the kingdom of God. And I'm just like, what? And immediately five, five years earlier, had flashed through my mind. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I didn't know that there were Christians in this area. And now you're telling me that there are evangelical Christians in this area. And, and you're telling me that there's enough of them that you have to have a Bible college and train their leaders. What, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. And so, um, and I narrate further in, in my book the, the story of, of what I had saw in terms of the Palestinian people and the people of Bethlehem and their oppression and their suffering. And so this is all coming to me at this moment. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. And that was just an aha moment sitting on that bus when I realized I have done this. I have contributed to this. My theology and my politics that say Israel at all costs, and if we want to be blessed by God, we have to bless the people of Israel. And I don't mean to, to disparage the people of Israel at all. We love them, and, and we want to see them come to Jesus also. But I immediately realized that my ideology and my politics that came from that ideology was driving a conflict. And I don't think the people back home knew what was going on. I don't think they understood that Israel was taking U.S. backing, U.S. support, military support, financial support, um, that the evangelical church is largely behind. And what they were doing with that was creating tremendous injustice to the Palestinian people as a result. And I understand, you know, the Israeli people have a Holocaust in their experience, and, and they don't know how to, they don't want to see another Holocaust ever again, but, and, and they don't know how to respond, but, but they're not responding in the right way. And they're responding in a way that's creating injustice. And now I'm seeing this injustice, and I'm realizing that, hey, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ also, and I'm the one that's that, that's kind of behind this, and I'm thinking, oh, no, i got to find out what's going on. And that was really the genesis of, of the last seven, eight years of my life now, in terms of going, wait a minute, uh, here I was raised as a Zionist. I know how they think. I know how they operate. I know, I know what scriptures they're going to go to. My Ph.D. is in biblical interpretation. Uh, my dissertation and my first book is on the book of Revelation and, and the people of God in the book of Revelation. And I'm trained in hermeneutics. I, I know how to respond to this. I need to provide a kind of a theological response. And, and as I talk with people like yourselves and others that are involved in this issue, pastors would, would become aware of what was going on and they, maybe they'd see it for themselves or whatever, but then they would respond by going, 
but I can't tell my congregation because my congregation is going to say, what about Genesis 12, or what about this passage, or what about God's promise here? And these pastors and church leaders just didn't know how to answer. They didn't know how to respond. And so I just, the Lord just said on my heart that, that I was the one that was equipped with the training and the background to help provide some support and references and uh, a guide for pastors and leaders and others to have this conversation with their congregation. Wow, that really is, is amazing. And this brings to mind your title, These Brothers of Mine. Uh, yeah. It's a very interesting title. You alluded to it a little bit uh, in your just what you said. Can you expand on that? Why did you choose it? Yeah, yeah. So what was really driving me um, was, you know, even before I had come to this crisis there in Bethlehem, uh, I had really become convinced, maybe even 15 years earlier, that the New Testament people of God through Jesus are, are the fulfillment of God's promises uh, to Abraham, etc. And so when God says, if you bless Israel, I'll bless you, and if you curse Israel, I'll curse you, or if you curse, really what he's saying is, if you bless my people, I will bless you, and if you curse my people, I will curse you. You see this in how the Apostle Paul, uh, when he was known as Saul, and Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, Jesus says to him. And you can think, well, he's not persecuting Jesus. You know, he's, he's persecuting Christians. But that's exactly the point. In persecuting Christians, in persecuting the people of God, you're persecuting Jesus. And so you take that to Matthew 25, and Jesus tells this parable of the sheep and the goats. And, Lord, when do we see you naked and hungry? When do we see you, you know, in prison and visit you? When do we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And he says, whenever you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. That the way you treat the followers of God, God's people, is the way you treat Christ and God himself. And so that's that Christ of faith that I'm having on this bus. And that's how I'm going, wait a minute. God tells me that the way I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ is the basis of judgment. I mean, that's Matthew 25. It's whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. And now I'm realizing I have supported a secular state of Israel and what they've done with that support uh, through U.S. politics and U.S. backing, uh, largely, not, not solely, but largely, but what they've done is they've used that to oppress the people. And some of these people that they're oppressing are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I uh, honestly, I, I repented on the spot. I repented and said, Lord, oh, my gosh, forgive me. I didn't understand what I was doing. So that really became the genesis of it. Now, mind you, of course, I'm not simply saying that we only need to be advocates for the church when the church is suffering. We need to love everybody. We need to be advocates for everybody, for every people, for every nation, but especially for these brothers of mine. And so that kind of really led to the title of the book and, and, and the, the thrust of, of, of the work. Well, how would you define Christian Zionism? <laughs> so, uh, well, Christian Zionism, just uh, interestingly, when you have debates like this, you know, uh, people throw out terms oftentimes pejoratively, right? Oh, you, oh, you believe in that, you know, as though yes. therefore I'm wrong because whatever that is. So the definitions of terms are, are always important. And Christian Zionism is not an absolute unified uh, system where all Christian Zionists believe this or this. But I guess the core of Christian Zionism is a Christian belief that the promises of God in the Old Testament to, to Abraham and his offspring are to be fulfilled literally by the ethnic, physical Jewish people of today. They don't believe that they have been fulfilled in the Old Testament, nor by Jesus, nor by the church. Therefore, these promises are still outstanding in terms of being fulfilled, and that fulfillment is in the physical, ethnic Jewish people. Now, some Christian Zionists will say 1948 was the fulfillment. Others will say 1967. And others will say, no, I don't think either one of those dates, though I do think there will be a future time when the physical Jews are brought into the family of God. And so it's this not a monolithic thing, but it's basically adhering to the idea that these promises still apply to the Jewish people, and oftentimes that they're fulfilled by the, the, the present-day nation of Israel. Obviously, now, if we add another element to it, it would be that they believe in this literal hermeneutic, this idea that the Bible must be interpreted literally at, at all times. But remember, not everybody who believes that is, is also a Christian Zionist. Well, the interesting thing we've noticed is that a lot of Christians don't even know they're uh, Christian Zionists. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so they're, they're completely unaware we have, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to our podcast for the first time, we have a couple of very good programs. One is by a, a lady that, her case, that she was not, didn't even know she was one, but she had believed what Pastor Rob is, is describing here and was challenged. And you can find that on our website. We'll have a link for that. Now I'd like to open it up for some questions. Okay. 
First, Rob, I want to thank you so much for the effort and the amount of work that you've put into this book. It is really a godsend to us and those that are trying to awaken the evangelical church to the dangers of Christian Zionism. I want to quote a little bit from the end of your book as well. It's like, why is this even important? And you say, for one, the gospel is at stake. Jesus commanded us to be peacemakers. When we advocate for war, or at least when we do not advocate for peace, we are failing to live up to the standard of the gospel. One of the greatest hindrances to our successful witness to the world is the attitude of many evangelicals towards peace in the Middle East and toward Middle Easterners in particular. We have not only failed to model Jesus to the world, we have failed to heed the cries of our own brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have been a poor witness to the world. That is, that is so profound, and I, I, I can't help but thinking of the matrix with the red pill and the blue pill. <laughs> Somehow to condense your book into a red pill and a blue pill that we can pass out to our evangelical brothers and sisters that are Christian scientists. I'm afraid too many are going to go for the FDA-approved blue pill, but I, I want us to be able to present this in a way that is condensed in a very short way. Your book is fantastic. It gives me the uh, theological backing for all these things that you've brought up already, and I, I, want, I want to thank you so much for that. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, there's a lot of stories that go behind that, that statement also, and, and uh, my own experiences. And the difficulty here when we're talking about evangelicals and, and Zionism is they're just default the Zionists. They, they, they don't, oftentimes they don't know better, they don't understand any better, and it makes sense from what they've heard, and, and, and they go with it, and it's put forth sometimes from pulpits and Obviously, the popular marketplace of books and, and movies have kind of have kind of spread this out. But I was in Bethlehem in 2012. I spent a week by myself. I thought, you know, I need to, if I'm going to be an advocate for, for these people, I need to, to meet with them myself and hear their stories personally. And so I took a trip over for one week, lived in Bethlehem, and I just went around and I met. I had a, an associate who was helping me arrange meetings, and I met Christian leaders, prominent Christian leaders throughout the, the Palestinian territory. And I said, tell me your story. They would tell me their stories, and one of them uh, said, Robert, now it's my turn to ask you a question. And I said, okay, well, great. Sure, what is it? He says, well, now that you know all this, he says, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, um, here's the reality. I said, what I'm going to do about it is obviously I need to be a, a voice, a prophetic voice to the evangelical church uh, in America. I said, but here's the problem. The problem is I can't just get up in a pulpit. At the time, I was at a, a, a large church, um, but as a, a um, non-denominational church, and we were working on this issue, but the congregation was probably 75% default Zionist. And so you just can't get up in a pulpit and preach this because they're not going to understand. You've you got to be more gentle with them, and you've got to take them on a journey. Mind you, my journey was 20 years long, so I'm not going to expect them to understand all this in the matter of, of 20 minutes or, or an hour. So I, I, said, I said, you know, the reality is that we have 20 million evangelical voters to change their minds. I said, but... The only way I can do it uh, is to speak with them one at a time. You know, I mean, that, that's the bottom line. The most effective way to have this conversation is just to sit down with somebody and tell them the story. Let them see and let them tell, tell them about your journey and about your story and what you've seen. I said, and so I, I answered to the Palestinian leader. I said, the problem is, is it'll take me 20 years to sit down with people one at a time to make any profound effect. I said, and you guys can't wait 20 years. And he looked at me and he says, nope. We can't wait 20 years, Rob. You know, so it's this, it's this conundrum of how do we do it? And I think um, the, the answer is we're going to have to advocate for our brothers and sisters who are suffering, um, but we're also going to have to be gentle and, and make disciples of those evangelicals that are in our pews and our congregations and in our communities who oftentimes just don't know any better. But, folks, we've got a lot of work to do because telling our stories one, one couple at a time is going to take a long time. Well, I wanted to thank you for the, the ammunition, if you will. It's inspired me to get some extra copies and take to my large evangelical church, who is held captive, just as you described, right. to uh, to give some ammunition for the, the uh, pastors there. And uh, that's all we can do, I, I think, is yeah. uh, we're, we're committed that we hold these truths to educating people and it is a, a very slow process. Right. And Americans have been so conditioned by so many factors, by the media, by our government, and so forth, 
that it is difficult to, to do this. This is Chuck Robb, and I'm a former Baptist deacon, long time, and I have to admit that I was a lot older than you when yeah. I finally started figuring it out, so I'm ashamed of how long it took me to figure it out. But it was about the time that the bombs started dropping for the first time on Iraq in 1990 that that I had a moment. And it was over this question of peace and war. But I want to really congratulate you on using and and explaining this chapter 25 in Matthew. We, We noticed that a long time ago ourselves, that it was a very persuasive chapter and that it's something that is completely skipped over by evangelicals. I don't think... In my evangelical church life, I ever heard a pastor give a, a, a lesson or, or a sermon on the sheep and the goats analogy. Wow. And uh, I, I just don't think I ever did, and I don't know if you did either. In our evaluation of what was happening and, and where help might come from, uh, we decided some years ago, as a result of confronting evangelical churches, that it is such a slow road, it is a one-by-one road, that... Uh, that the help would probably have to come from the mainline churches that were fast asleep and really didn't pay much attention, but but and were considered to be highly liberal in other ways. And we we thought maybe they will be the awakening, maybe that will take place. And I want I want to encourage you because we are seeing that happening in places like the old Church of Christ which came out with a a statement in which they almost unanimously voted to sanction the state of Israel for their abuse of the Palestinians. It's not really a scriptural thing so much as just a a, a realization of what's happening there. And then, of course, we've seen some things in the the mainline Presbyterian church and in the uh, evangelical Lutheran church and in the old Methodist church, a recognition that's come from through the missionary cycles of people noticing things like you noticed when you were there. So we think, or at least I think in what I write, that this is uh, sort of the direction and hope to see. And I wanted to ask you how you respond to evangelicals when they open their Schofield Reference Bible. And there in the footnotes uh, of the 67 edition is the evangelicals' answer to your book, on Matthew 25, and uh, what they do in, uh, um, uh, is, of course, they redefine who the sheep and the goats and the brothers are. Right. And and as uh, maybe you'd like to uh, tell us about that, or would you, would you like me to read it since I have it open? No, that's okay. I think um, I think we have the idea, right? That they're redefining it as the nation of Israel today. Yeah. If I can comment on your on your first comment first before your question, even I'm not certain that waking up the mainline denominations is actually going to be enough. This issue is driven in American politics by evangelical voters and by evangelical Christians. As a evangelical today, I am not calling myself an evangelical, but as a former fundamentalist and kind of strong far right wing person, I can say right now that the people on the far right could care less what Presbyterians think, could care less what the Church of Christ thinks, could care less what most of these mainline denominations think because they when you're when you're in the far right, you look at everybody else, and obviously everybody else is left. And it doesn't matter how far to the left you are, you could still be on the right of the spectrum. You're to the left of me, and and when you're to the left of me, if I'm far right, you're a liberal, and um, that, that's just it's, you know it's one of those pejorative terms. Uh, oh, you're a liberal, and liberals just aren't listened to. I, I remember when I was preparing to go to, to Westminster Seminary, a, a staunchly evangelical seminary. Westminster was founded in the 1920s and 30s by professors from Princeton University who left Princeton because they felt Princeton was being too was too liberal. So it's the bastion of conservatism uh, um, uh, as well. But I had a friend of mine, an older um, a mentor, who said to me, uh, "Rob, don't let them make a liberal out of you." You know, it's just that's the mindset of the of the evangelicals. And so anybody that's viewed as being left at all, they're just not going to listen to them. So. Yeah, I think it's great that we get the mainline denominations on board and we get their voice and all this, but I can tell you that most evangelicals won't listen to them. Um, so what do we do? Well, we're going to have to educate the evangelicals somehow, and what I've seen work most effectively would be twofold. One would be having conversations with the individual people in these churches, just sitting them down. My wife and I have them over for dinner all the time, and we'll sit them down and we'll tell them our stories. This is my journey. This is what happened. 
I grew up this way, I believe this. Then I went over to the land and I saw this and I saw this. And then I realized this theologically. And look, and I'll show them pictures of the wall. I'll show them pictures of whatever other injustices that are happening there. You know, and of course, not painting one side as good or one side as bad, that's not the point. But to say this is what's going on, something that you probably don't know about. That's one way to do it. The second thing to do is we've got to get the leaders of these evangelical churches. We've got to get them over there. We've got to get them over to the land and let them see for themselves uh, what's going on. Then we have to be able to give them the theological foundation, which I'm hoping my book is part of that equation, so that they can then address this with the congregation. And they're going to have to have, we have to pray for these leaders because they have to have the prophetic gall, the, the strength to speak up because it's going to be so easy for them just to be quiet. So that's kind of what I think is probably the best strategic avenues to, uh, to go down. Um, as far as your question on Matthew 25, and I dealt with this at length in part four of my book, where I have an entire chapter on these brothers of mine and uh, the sermon, and I look at this parable in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. I look at this parable in the context of Matthew 24 and 25, which is the fifth of five speeches of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this parable serves as a climax of what we call the Olivet Discourse. And it's so interesting, you, know, you just mentioned that you've never heard a sermon on the parable of the sheep and the goats. Well, what's interesting is you've probably heard teachings on the Olivet Discourse and the return of Jesus and, uh, you know, all that. Yet the climax of that sermon is this parable. Um, yes. And so it's, it's vital to understanding what Jesus is getting at. But then what I also do is I break down the phrase brothers of mine and least of these in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and, and if you look... Uh, these brothers of mine, or brothers of mine, it's used always in the Gospel of Matthew by Jesus to refer to his followers. Who are my brother and my mother and my sister, uh, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven? So it's really easy to figure out who the brothers of mine are because Jesus defines them in Matthew 12 as those who follow him. So um, uh, to, to read that as though this applies to the Jewish people is a serious case of reading into the text something that's just clearly not even there at all. Except in the Schofield Reference Bible. Yeah, <laughs> which unfortunately okay. the, the footnotes sometimes become more important than the text, right? Yes, that's what they, yeah, what they often preach yeah. from. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's well, thank you very much. Tragic. That was great. I appreciate your response to that. And, I, and I do agree, agree with you that the evangelicals have to wake up because yep. that's, that is the voting people. They are the most active they not only uh, are numerous, but they're very active. And, yeah. and there are probably 20 Christian Zionists in America for every Jewish Zionist in America. Yeah, very true. Very true. This Mark, is Mark Horton. I grew up in an amillennial church, and uh, we have a mixture of uh, old hymns in our songbooks uh, and then new kind of pop songs from the 1930s and on. But uh -huh. uh, the, the older hymns are steeped in typology, yeah. and uh, our home church in Bakersfield, we spent about two years going through uh, uh 1850s textbook on typology. It was about 900 pages, and this is kind of what really launched me into a fulfilled view of prophecy. But do the dispensationalists, do they view all the people who wrote those hymns and taught typology and all the conservative denominations in the 1840s and 50s and 60s and 70s as liberals? Or, or is that a possible tool to use, you know, some of these old hymns on Jordan's stormy banks I stand? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of them. I mean, the, the yeah. hymn writers of the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, they understood that all of this was fulfilled in Jesus uh, although, you know, there, you find some confusion, but I don't know, uh, would they call these people liberals? No, no, I don't think they would. I'm not an expert on this, on this particular question, but I don't think they would. I mean, my own experience, no, I, I think because they're so ignorant of, of who these hymn writers are, they don't really know what background they're coming from. So, yeah, I wouldn't think that they would call them liberals. Well, I know I asked our church, what does the Jordan River represent in prophecy, you know, in the Old Testament? And they had no clue. I mean, they were absolutely clueless. And then I, I started humming that song on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and all that. Well, I had to almost mm -hmm. uh, hit them on the head with a hammer to get them to realize that it represents death. Israel crossed through the Jordan. It dried up so they could not experience death as they entered the promised land. And, 
and Jesus was immersed in the River Jordan, signifying, you know, what was about to happen. I mean, it's very consistent. And, you know, yet if you pursue this, which was commonly understood 150 years ago, again, you're denigrated as spiritualizing the Bible. Yeah, right, right. And that's why, if, you, if you've read my book, uh, what I try to point out is, if we keep the conversation on Christ and, and focusing on Christ, and those I don't get into typology there because it's going to lose them. This hasn't come up yet, but just so you know, um, I began this task of writing this book in December of 2009, so it took almost five years to come out. And this book actually is, is actually two books. My earlier book is titled Understanding Eschatology, and it basically those two books combined are the product of this one endeavor. And what I did was, as I was writing Understanding Eschatology, and eschatology means um, the study of the end times, I realized that if I were to, to continue writing, I would lose people. So what I did is I, I thought, let me stop now. I'll go to print with Understanding Eschatology. And what I do in that book, basically, is I lay a foundation for how we interpret the Bible, how we interpret the Bible in light of Jesus, and what that means in regards to the end times, namely that the end times began with Jesus, that when you read the Gospels in light of the end times, it makes sense. Jesus is fulfilling all these great prophecies of the Old Testament about the end. And, of course, the rest of the New Testament then has this eschatological context. Uh, you know, like the, the last days have begun, as Peter says in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit's poured out. And that means that the eschatology or the end times continues throughout the history of the church until the climax of his return. Okay, so I thought, well, what I, what I, what I really did in that book was I actually took the, the foundation of dispensationalism or the foundation of Christian Zionism, I took it out, I took the carpet away from them. You know, when you take the carpet away from somebody theologically, especially when they're not well trained, they're gonna, they're gonna react defensively because theology is so crucial. I mean, you, you take this away from me, what does that mean to me? I don't, I don't know what that means. It's because they don't know what it means, they're just gonna hold on extra tight. They're not gonna wanna let go. But in taking the carpet away from the, from the Christian Zionism, what I did is I did it by giving them another carpet to stand on. I said, hey, come with me for a second. Let's stand on this carpet. And the carpet that I gave them was, it's Jesus. Look, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so when they walked over with me to step on this carpet that's all about Jesus, they didn't realize that they had actually walked away from the foundations of Christian Zionism. Then I write this next book, These Brothers of Mine, and say, now let's go to the next step the implications of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture, the implications of the Bible being about Jesus, hermeneutics and typology ultimately being about Jesus, is that Jesus is God's chosen people. The land is fulfilled in Jesus. The people of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, look at this. And I remember a good friend of mine had given my book, Understanding Eschatology, to a close relative of his, uh, who was a Southern Baptist, and uh, what have you. And, and this person was reading this book, and my book, and he said, he says, well, you know what? I kept wanting to disagree with him. I kept wanting to not like his book. But you know what? It was all about Jesus, and I had to like it. And so I found that to be a, a more successful approach, that let's focus this conversation on Jesus and show them what that means, and then we'll take them on this journey to say, now let's apply it to the issues of land and family, and I'll guess what that means for Christian Zionism. I find that to be much more successful. If you talk about typology and you talk about, the, it sounds like you're spiritualizing the Bible, and since they're going to go, I don't know what that means for everything else in the Bible, and that makes the Bible confusing, I don't know what's typology and what's not, I'm going to go back to where I'm comfortable, and that's literalism. So instead of doing that, I found a much better approach to say, let's just make it about Jesus. I'm not spiritualizing, because the Bible literally is about Jesus. He literally is the child of Abraham. He literally is you know, the fulfillment of the temple. He literally is these things. And so I find that to be a much more successful path to travel down. Uh, Rob, this is Chuck again. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we've done many vigils in front of churches, and on a lot of occasions, the only way we reach anyone is with a three-word sign or billboard that we carry. But there are uh, some occasions where we actually get to talk to quite a lot of people. And as a result of all these hundreds, of, more than well over 100 now of these encounters that we've done with huge churches and some little churches, we've talked to a, a, a lot of people who are just slightly hostile toward us, but yeah. sometimes quite curious. And we find the same thing that you've said to be totally true, that the only message that gets through them is something 
that is hopefully a little bit scriptural and is very simple about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And one one of the modern methods we've used is who would Jesus balm? We ask that right. of, of everybody. And as we go to these places, we try to talk to the kids first and uh, and the parents of kids second. And then if you have any time left over, the gray-haired people last. Uh, because future yeah. is in the young people. They're the ones who can understand who would Jesus mom. And they would understand Matthew 25 if someone would just read it to them, explain the parable to them, and tell them who the sheep are and who the goats are and who the brothers are. And yeah. uh, Jesus does explain that. So you've done a beautiful job with that. And you've just cut it so simply that I don't know how anybody could possibly read it and not understand it. Well, good. Well, and yet, that's, that's and yet they do, of course. We know they do. Well, and they do. And again, it's, most of the time, though, it'll be the rejection is because they didn't really finish re- reading the whole book. They mm-hmm. saw where the book was going and said, no, I'm not going to go there. We have to remember that people become defensive when they are uh, fearful, right? And unfortunately, Christians, a lot of them live in fear. They live in this fear that somebody might prove me wrong, and so they hold more tenaciously. It's a shame that the Christian church is known as being narrow-minded and bigoted and overly dogmatic and et cetera, but a lot of that's fear. A lot of that is, I'm not sure if, I, if, if you take this away from me, what else is that going to mean? And so we have to be able to find a way to say, what about this point? What about this? What about the fact that Jesus said, I'm the temple? What does that mean? You're telling me that your theology says it's going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem someday, as though this, this end times temple, but didn't Jesus say he was the temple? And that's easy because all Christians are going to agree that Jesus is the temple. It doesn't matter what their theology is. They're going to agree with you. Jesus is the temple. Okay, now what does it mean to say Jesus is the temple? Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, you see, if Jesus is the temple, then there's no, then the prophecies about the temple are fulfilled in him. And now we win them over. Or, you know, who would Jesus bomb? I bet. That's a great question. It's a great question, especially for young folks, 30, 30 years and under, who tend to be more peace-going and whatever. Yeah, who would Jesus bomb? And yeah, how do I reconcile these wars in the name of Christianity and the teaching of Jesus? I think that's a great avenue and a great, a great, a great approach. Rob, it seems like every time we go and um, do one of these vigils, we always get marginalized through name-calling. If you're anti-Christian Zionism, then you're an anti-Semite. Uh, yeah, all all this stuff gets gets thrown out. What I'd like you to talk about on the on the broadcast here is how you combine the uh, both and with the Christian Zionism and replacement theology, because we also get labeled as a replacement theologian, and then then we're liberal, and then the the, the ears get blocked. And, okay, we're done with you. We're not going to listen to you, anything else you say because we labeled right. you in that category, and we know what that category is, and so we're not going to listen to you because you know you're dangerous. So uh, please, that's right. Uh, talk about yeah. the, the both and because I think it did a great job on that in the book. Well, thank you very much. I, I think it's simple. First off, yeah, any of these labels, anti-Semitic or replacement theology, are are death knell. Right now, you're silenced. No one will listen to you. The irony is, no one knows what replacement theology even means. So you're, oh, you're a replacement theologian. Yeah, what's that supposed to mean? You know, but they label you with these things, and of course, it's the means of shutting you off and shutting you down. But the both end is easy because it's just the teachings of Jesus, right? I mean, first off, the idea that, that the people of God are the, the sheep and we are the, the brothers of Jesus that he's referring to, that's easy because just reference Paul, as I did earlier. Why are you persecuting me? So you see Paul's persecuting Christians means he's persecuting Jesus. Um, so that, that one's a little bit easy. And then John 12, they'll know you're Christians because you love one another. Okay, there you go. That's going to be a hallmark of who we are, that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But then the, 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 the both end part is because Jesus said to love your neighbor, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Okay, great. Am I anti-Semitic? Well, if I'm anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Christian because Jesus told me to love everybody. He told me to, to, to pray for the government. He told me to pray for these leaders. He told me to pray for ISIS. Jesus wants me to pray for ISIS. In almost any camp, even in this conversation, you're like, oh, no, you can't pray for ISIS. It's like, no, that's exactly what Jesus told me to do, um, was to pray for my enemies. So I'm going to pray for Israel. I'm going to pray for Russia. I'm going to pray for Nigeria. I'm going to pray for everybody, no matter what race, no matter what gender, no matter what social class they're a member of. I'm going to love them and because that's what he wants me to do. So I think it's important that when we... When we say, okay, wait a minute, Christian Zionism is wrong, and Christian Zionism is dangerous, as I do at the end of my book, 
But that doesn't mean that the Jewish people are bad. That doesn't mean that the Palestinians are good. That doesn't mean that I'm pro-Muslim. No, no, not at all. It means I'm following Jesus' footsteps. And in doing so, I'm advocating first for his brothers and secondly for all mankind. So I think that, that, that kind of becomes easy. Great, Did you want me to address replacement theology now? By all means. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or supersessionalism, is that the same thing? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah that's it is the word. same thing. And replacement theology and supersessionism are basically the same, the same thing, two different names for superseded. the same thing. Yeah, something, yeah, it, Jesus it, it, superseded it, it, God or something. Yeah, it, well, it's the idea that the church has replaced Israel. The, the theology basically says, the replacement theology, which I do not agree with at all, on a number of different levels, I do, I do not agree with the replacement theology. But it basically says that Israel failed. It failed in its mission. It failed in its purpose. And therefore, God replaced Israel with the church. Interestingly, by the way, there's actually a lot of Schofield in there. If you, if you look at it carefully, right? The Schofield says Israel failed. Sermon on the Mount was given to Israel, but they failed. Therefore, God, Jesus turned to the Gentiles. You know, it's the same idea, actually. And they just go in a different direction with it. Of course, the answer to that is, God's promises have not failed, and Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. I mean, the whole point of it is that we cannot do it. The Jews in the Old Testament, more people today, can be faithful to God's law, can be faithful to God's calling. We needed Jesus to come and do that for us. And he did so as a true Israelite. He did so as the fulfillment of all God's promises to Abraham and David and on. Now, as Christians who have faith in Christ, we are co-heirs with Jesus. And therefore, what was true of Jesus becomes true of us in the sense of our identity, who we are as God's, as God's chosen people, right? You're a chosen race, Peter would say, um, as well as our mission. And our mission is to be a light unto the nations. So you'll see in Luke chapter 2 where Simeon says that I can now die, this old man who's waiting for the Messiah to come. He says, I can now die because my, my eyes have seen the Messiah and he, and he quotes Isaiah 49, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, or a light of revelation to the nations. So he quotes Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 42, which is a reference to Israel. Israel wants to be a light unto the nations, and he applies that to Jesus. But then you go to Acts 13, and you see that Paul says that Barnabas and I have to go preach to the Gentiles because, and then he quotes the exact same passage, God has made us a light of revelation to the nations. So the question becomes, how can this be true of Jesus? And yet at the same time, it's true of the church, that we are the light to the nations. And the answer is, because we're co-heirs with Jesus. The mission of Jesus, the mission of Israel, to be a light to the nations, was fulfilled by Jesus, and now it's carried on in the mission of God's people. So uh, that, that's the idea. So on, on several levels, and I will disagree with replacement theology. First off, replacement theology uses the exact same hermeneutic in many cases, as the dispensationalists of the Christian Zionists. Namely, they're looking for this literal fulfillment, ultimately, though they tend to spiritualize things here and there. But they're really not much different in their theological uh, assumptions. They're hermeneutic. Uh, um, it's a big word. Hermeneutic means your theology or philosophy of how you interpret Scripture, your science of interpreting the Bible. And they actually start with the same foundation as Christian Zionists do, or dispensationalists do. I'm saying, no, that's not the proper hermeneutic. The proper hermeneutic is Jesus, that the scriptures are about him, and that we read the scriptures first and primarily as how they are fulfilled in Jesus. The very nature and purpose of scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. So it's on this several different layers. It's not just that I disagree with what they're saying about this or about that. It's their actual approach to how we even interpret the Bible that I think both the Christian Zionists and the replacement theology theologians are both fundamentally flawed. I guess the question I'd say is, what's the Bible about? Who's it about? And the answer is, it's about God making himself known that he might dwell among his people. And, of course, that's what the Gospel of John tells us Jesus is the Paloma. Rob, I'm hoping that the old mainline churches, including the PC USA, will grab your book and get excited and go out and start evangelizing the big Christian Zionist church across the street. <laughs> Is that asking yeah, too much? Amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. Uh, no, we're not asking too much, but, but they're going to have to do so in a way that's effective and in a way that's going to give them a hearing because you've got to remember how, the, how the, 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 the strong right, and most Christian Zionists are strong right, not all of them are, of course, how they think and how they react, and that is anything that's left is just liberal and not to be touched. You don't, you don't <laughs> look at it 
They're liberal politically. They're liberal theologically. They're liberal morally. And so as a result of that, you know, how these labels work, that's one of those labels that means I don't therefore listen to you. And so now we need, that's why we need voices from within. Uh, we need voices uh, from within to say, hey, wait a second. No, no, stop. Let's go back for a second. Let's, let's, let's double check this and take this over again. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Rob, for this very, very thoughtful discussion about your book. We're so glad that you've written it, number one, and we will post a link where people can go to buy the book. It's a must-read for anyone that's interested in the subject and would like to do something about it. And I think we need to put wings to our feet and challenge our pastors, challenge our fellow Christians. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If I can uh, go ahead and and put a plug in if people want more uh, resources, I actually would recommend uh, Understanding Eschatology as the first book that they might want to read. It's available on Amazon.com also. And then These Brothers of Mine is is, uh, kind of the sequel really to that book. So if you have somebody that you're not sure how they're going to react, you might start with Understanding Eschatology. We kind of know on the inside that it's laying a foundation for addressing Christian Zionism, but the person who's reading it probably won't know that. Then we've established a foundation for these brothers of mine, and it's an easier easier jump for somebody to read these brothers of mine. Secondly, I have a website that I've got a lot of blogs on and eight years of classes on the Gospels, on understanding the New Testament, understanding the Old Testament. I've got apologetics courses, theology, church history courses. Almost every book of the New Testament I've done a course on. And when I say course, I mean uh, anywhere from eight to 16 hours worth of audio recordings. So I have two websites. One will be DeterminedTruth.com, uh, DeterminedTruth.com, and that website's going to have more of the blogs uh, and resources. I do have some audio links on that website on uh, my presentations on Israel-Palestine and how I became involved in introducing it to kind of the beginner. And then I have another website called DeterminedTruth.wordpress.com, and that website has every class basically that I just referenced there, maybe 25 to 30 different classes. Some of them are seminars, maybe four hours long, but most of them are classes, uh, 12 hours or longer on. I've got a 24 hours probably of lectures on the Book of Revelation, which is my expertise. So people are welcome to do that. And then they can find me on Facebook also as Rob Dalrymple. Um, and like my Facebook page, that would be helpful. The more I get that recognition, the, the easier it is for publishers to continue publishing the books. So just, just so you understand. Rob? I did have a question that's kind of a sideline question to the uh, Christian approach that you're talking about, and maybe this isn't relevant, but I've run across many of my friends who are like-minded conservatives, and they're not necessarily so religious. Have you ever thought of using how to talk to people who have the right conservative views, but they're not necessarily religious? Is there any uh, application of your teaching that could be applied to these kind of people? Because there's a large amount of people that we could reach as well. Yeah, well, I think I think it was Craig that read that part of my book a little earlier about how I, I said that one of the first things that's at stake in this debate is the gospel. And so as we present a gospel of Jesus, a gospel of peace, and a gospel of love, I find that Jesus is attractive. People are not attracted to the church because they have this concept of the church as, as to what it is, but they're attracted to Jesus. And, the, and so my whole approach in both the, these last two books is that the scriptures are about Jesus. And if we simply show them Jesus and show them the story of Jesus and who he is and what he said, and we live that out, of course, in our own lives, that it's attractive. It's as, we have 2,000 years of history that says that Jesus is attractive. The gospel as lived out by Jesus is attractive. The younger folks, the more postmodern or even post-postmodern folks, they love the story. And, and that when you present the Bible as a story about Jesus, they want that. They really do. They want to, they want to grasp onto a story that has meaning and foundation because they don't have anything. So the younger they are, the more, the more the story is appealing to them and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. And, and, and here's the next point. My book, Understanding Eschatology, the subtitle of that book is Why It Matters. In the last chapter of the book, I address why does it matter? And I say it matters because this is the mission of God's people. We are to live out Jesus' mission. Who he is and what he did is now to be carried on by the church to proclaim the kingdom. And as we do that, all of a sudden we proclaim to this postmodern 26-year-old 
young man or woman who doesn't have any meaning in the world or purpose or value in the world. And we say, look, God created you in his image. He gave you meaning and purpose and value. And he wants you to be his child so that you can carry out his mission of making him known to the nation. That is powerful. I think it's really powerful. And I think the gospel will, will spread. But certainly it has to be lived out by the church. And we can't be known as people advocating for war, people advocating for hatred, things like that. Or anti-Muslim or anti-Jewish or anti-anything. Well, we can't. So That helps a lot. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Rob, is it going to be a sequel to These Brothers of Mine? No, probably not. Uh, I am working on another book right now, which is basically a reader's guide to understanding the book of Revelation and how to, how to read and understand the book of Revelation for the layperson. And I am really thinking about the next step, which kind of, I guess you could say, theoretically is a sequel uh, to these brothers of mine, but taking the theology and the biblical theology that, that the Lord has, has helped me with and saying, what does this mean for justice? What does this mean for being advocates for peacemaking? What does this mean for Christians in, in the political world? I'm a little reticent about doing that because I'm a biblical scholar, and I, yeah. I'm here to say this is what the text means, and I'd rather leave issues of justice and politics to those much more qualified than I. Sometimes you just have to reach out, Rob, yeah, and do exactly. what needs doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> even yep. even and, if you uh, think it doesn't quite fit. Yep. I'm writing some blogs right now on what, what happens when your pastor says things that you don't want to hear. And uh, <laughs> like, deal with it, because every pastor should be preaching things that you don't want to hear. We just all should. Whether it's something you don't want to hear today or something that somebody else doesn't want to hear tomorrow, we all need to be able to hear things like that and, and what have you. So encouraging pastors to be more prophetic and more bold. Thanks again, Pastor Rob, for joining us to discuss your important and powerful book, These Brothers of Mine, A Biblical Theology of Land and Family and a Response to Christian Zionism. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.